All right. If you're visiting, or if you're new, um, we as a church are very committed to teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, Genesis to Revelation. We do that in various ways, but that's, that's kind of the overriding thing that we do. Um, and the reason I say if you're visiting, um, then we're doing a couple of different weeks, if you will. So if you'll indulge us here, uh, last week we talked about Christmas in the context of Matthew chapter 1. Next week we'll talk about where it seems like the Lord is leading us and has us and all that. But I thought it would be helpful, and uh, I forget whose idea it was. I th- probably Nate's. Um, um, that, you know, there is, a, a lot of times it's good to have sort of an update. And so there are a lot of things going on in the world right now. And I think with that comes a lot of, if you will, spiritual awareness. And with that, a lot of spiritual questions and with that, a lot of confusion. Does that make sense? And so uh, I had a person in my office this week uh, talking about uh, spiritual things. And she said, yeah, I don't understand why people don't believe the Bible. You know, we, we really need to stand by the Bible and all that. And, you know, and I'm kind of talking and she's like, next thing I know, she's telling me about what the, uh, what the palm reader told her. And I'm like, we need a little clarity, right? And that's the world we live in. The world we live in lacks the, the, the ammo, if you will, to sort out the issues. I mean, how in the, don't we at all time, if, if, like never before really, don't we need a biblical grid with which to read the evening news? or the morning news, or the 24-hour news, right? And so, uh, anyway, as some of you know, uh, about an hour from now, all of you will know that, um, see, that's God calling. <laughs> about an hour, and that's okay. Um, about an hour from now, you'll all know, my son Nate gets fired up about this stuff. And so, um, those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you're used to hearing him teach. If you haven't been here on Wednesday nights, then you'll know that this is the guy that teaches on Wednesday nights. And so uh, he does a great job. And uh, the grandkids, my grandkids, uh, honestly, would rather hear Nate teach than Papa. And, and so uh, I'm so well-adjusted, I'm okay with that. And so, and particularly, particularly in areas of biblical prophecy, uh, frankly, you know, we all just kind of have our own little thing, and Nate loves to read about this and study about this and listen to people teach about this, and so I thought it seemed fitting that, uh, that he would be the guy that would share a prophecy update with us. All right? Does that sound all right? Fair enough. Get over for Nate Murphy. Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, 
Let's open it up to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. Uh, if you've got one of the Bibles off the back table, it's page 1250. And uh, while you're turning there, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we thank you that we have the chance as a church to come together and open up your word. And we want to have hearts right now that are open to what you would say to us. We want to be willing to listen, quick to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading. God, we pray tonight, today as we're looking at a, at a specific passage of Scripture that you would just teach us from it, that we would grow through it, and most of all, that you would be glorified. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So, this is the first time I've ever taught on a Sunday morning. And if you've never been out on a Wednesday night, you need for full disclosure to know this is not going to be an f- accurate representation for two major reasons. The first is that I'm wearing shoes. And the second <laughs> is that I actually have, there's actually three. The, se- the second is that I actually have notes that I write, wrote on a computer and ran through a printer. And the third is that I actually have a podium. So I have no idea what to do with this. We'll figure it out. But um, what we want to do today is give, what, if you will, a prophecy update, but really we're going to do it by looking at a specific portion of Scripture that is uh, a major prophecy that was written down about 2,500 years ago when the Lord gave this to the prophet Ezekiel. And it's a, it's a prophecy that I've always been fascinated by because I think it may be the next major prophecy in Scriptures to be fulfilled. We're not positive where it falls in the biblical timeline, but it's, if not the next, it's one of the next because of the way that it's orchestrated in the scriptures, the way that the Lord speaks of it, and the things that come before and after it. And so it's really a great passage as you look at where is the world today to then go back and say, okay, so what does the scripture have to say? Because you don't want to look at the world and say, how does this impact how I read the scripture? You want to look at the scriptures and say, how does this impact how we look at the world? And how we read the news? And how, you know, we, we have, have you noticed that the world is going just a little bit crazy right now? Right, there's war in all over the world. Russia is in a war with Ukraine right now. Israel's in a war with Hamas right now. Myanmar is in a civil war. Syria's in a civil war. Sudan has been in a civil war for decades at this point. There's, there's tribal fighting in islands all over the world. Nobody is at peace right now. And we're not in a, in a physical hot war, but we are in very much what you could argue is a cold war, either with foreign adversaries or just within our own political divisions. Nobody has peace right now in the world. And so when we look at the news, if we don't understand... What is the source of peace? Then we will not have peace either. And as Christians, we have the opportunity to be reflecting peace to the world, to be living lives of peace and trust in the Lord that cause other people to say, what is it about your life? How are you not freaking out right now? How are you not losing your mind right now? And we can say, well, it's actually because we know what happens next. The world is obsessed with what comes next. Right? Who's going to win the election? Who's going to be the first country to drop the bomb? Who's going to be the first country to you know, find whatever mineral? Who's going to get to Mars first? The world is obsessed with what comes next, but the scriptures tell us what comes next. Because God has written down prophecies for us throughout the Bible. The, the, the scripture is roughly one-fourth to one-third prophecy. And so when we look at the scriptures, if you want to study the whole word of God, you need to be willing to study prophecy. Because God has written it down for us, and it is insulting to God to say, oh, we don't want to study prophecy. If someone you love wrote you a three-page letter and you said, oh, I read the first two pages. They were awesome. Third page looked a little boring, so I just threw it away. There would be an indication there that maybe you don't care about that person that much. And the Lord has said, hey, here's my letter to you. 
I have texted you this. Why don't you read it and see what I think? Why don't you read it and get to know me? And if we say, well, you know, we'll read this much, but not this much, that's offensive. And so we look at prophecy because the Lord has given it to us. But it also accomplishes a couple things in our lives when we study prophecy. Prophecy is given to comfort us. Okay, it's given to comfort us, but it's also given to make us uncomfortable. And it does those two things side by side because it depends on what your anchor is. If your hope is in, okay, I want to get my my cute family and my cute house with my cute dog, and we're just going to live our lives and stay secure, and I'll get my 401k, and I'll retire, and we'll live happily ever after, then prophecy will make you uncomfortable. If If your goal is, I want to serve Jesus Christ in whatever capacity he puts me, then prophecy is massively comforting. If your hope for the world is, oh, you know, if the right person gets elected, if the right... If the right government falls, if the right weapons get built or destroyed, then we'll be safe. Then prophecy is going to make you very, very uncomfortable. But if your hope is, you know what, Jesus Christ is coming back, then prophecy is going to comfort you. And either way, a third element of prophecy, after making us comfortable and uncomfortable, because it always orients our position back to Jesus Christ, okay, it causes us to live with a sense of urgency, Because when we read prophecies, when the Lord says, I'm coming quickly and here's the things that are going to happen, we then realize, oh, he's coming quickly. And actually, as we've seen prophecies be fulfilled, even in our own lifetimes, we understand, oh, he's getting closer. And do we know the exact day? No. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour that he comes back. But can we look and say, it's getting closer? Yes, we can. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel 37. We won't read it today, but it's the chapter before where we wind up today where the Lord says, I'm going to bring Israel back into the land and they're going to be a country again. And that happened in 1948. So if you were born before 1948, you've seen a massive biblical prophecy fulfilled. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that the city of Damascus will someday be destroyed. If you're alive, if you're over 10 or 15 years old, you realize that prophecy has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. Damascus, in the country of Syria, is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. But it's now a ghost town. It's been absolutely decimated. And it's a question of, will it be, you know, how complete will this prophecy be? Is it going to get, you know, how much more wiped out can it get? We don't know. But Syria is in the middle of a massive civil war, and the city of Damascus has been just destroyed. That's a prophecy that we've seen fulfilled. There's prophecies about the nation of Egypt will never be a major world player again. Egypt's the country that built the pyramids. Right? Then we, we still talk about the Egyptians and, and their wealth and their power and all the things they accomplished. Egypt is around today. That was prophesied. Egypt is not one of the major players. Egypt doesn't have a seat on the UN Security Council. Egypt isn't really driving the ship in the geopolitical world. And so prophecy causes us to live with this awareness of, oh, you know what? The word of God is real. When God said, this is happening, this is coming, God meant it. Which means when God says, hey, I want you to take life seriously. And Jude, when he says, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints, that's real too. When Jesus said, you know, I'm going I'm to go, but I'm going to send the Spirit and he's going to equip you, that's real. When Paul said, grace and peace be multiplied to you, that's real. And so prophecy is given to comfort us, to make us uncomfortable at the same time, to cause us to live with urgency, but to point us to Jesus Christ. And that's important because if we get into prophecy, 
We can get way down in the weeds in prophecy, and all of a sudden it's about, well, which prophet do you follow? Which interpretation of prophecy do you prefer? Which Greek tense or Greek Bible, which, you know, which version is the best, and who's got the best take? And that's not the point. The point is, is it pointing us to Jesus Christ? Okay? And so today we're going to read chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. As we're reading it, we need to keep in mind a couple of things about how we interpret prophecy. The first is that you interpret prophecy as literally as possible, whenever possible. And the reason for that is that the scriptures prophesied about the coming of Christ, and they are still prophesying about the future coming of Christ. Jesus Christ will come to earth twice. Okay, he came at what we call Christmas. Okay, he was born as a man, lived and died, rose again and ascended into heaven. He's coming back again. But when we look at the scriptures and we look at the prophecies about his first coming, they were fulfilled very, very literally. So literally that it's almost hard to conceive how it could be fulfilled any more literally. And you look at them and you try and imagine being a, a Jewish believer before the coming of Christ and reading the Old Testament and saying, well, I don't know. This must be metaphorical. He said a virgin will conceive and bear a child. Obviously, this must be talking about maybe the, you know, the spiritual purity of the lady who will bear the Messiah. There must be, uh, it can't be an actual virgin because virgins don't conceive and bear children. There's references to, you know, uh, he'll be out of Egypt, he'll be out of Bethlehem, he'll be out of the area of Nazareth. This must, this must be metaphorical. And the prophecies start getting fulfilled as Jesus comes on earth. And they're literal, and they're literal, and they're literal, and they're literal. Over and over again, there's, with very few exceptions. And even some of the exceptions where this prophecy says a branch will arise. And you say, okay, it's, it's you know, a new growth. Well, the city of Nazareth, the word Nazar is the word branch. A branch will arise, yeah, the guy from Branch Town came and was the Savior. Prophecy has been fulfilled very literally, and so when we look at prophecies that have not been fulfilled, the most consistent way to interpret them as students of the Scripture is to say, okay, we're going to assume that this will be fulfilled literally. Next thing we're going to remember, specifically in this passage today, is that when God deals in judgment, God judges nations and God judges individuals. And it's not the same thing. Because every individual will someday stand before God and their admission into heaven will be based on whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ. That's different than how God judges nations because God brings nations to power and he removes power from nations. And it's based on the collective sin of a nation. But here's the deal. God judges nations, but he never loses the individuals in the nation. God never says, oh shoot, I destroyed the nation and ah, there were a lot of you know, people who I would have saved but got a little carried away. It was kind of just you know, a, a blanket judgment. God never does that. When God judges, and we'll read about God judging nations, he never misses the individual in the nation. And that's important because if you read some of the passages about God dealing with different groups of people, you say, wow, God is getting harsh. No, he's not. He's very, very specific. Every person who ever dies will have had the exact number of chances that they need to choose whether or not they will accept Jesus Christ. They'll have the perfect number. Some people have gone through every number by the time they're 20. Some people, there's a couple chances left when they're 90. And God knows the exact number. He never loses an individual in the midst of dealing with nations. And then the last thing we need to remember is that there is a difference between what we know and what we speculate. 
When we get into prophecy, there's the word of God, and then there are the opinions of people about what the word of God says. And it is fine to speculate about prophecy. It's a heck of a lot of fun to speculate about prophecy. It's one of my favorite hobbies. But there is a big difference, and it's especially important as, as we're studying the word of God together. We need to be able to delineate between is this what the word of God says or is this what Nate thinks? And I'm going to try to stay as close as we can to what does the word of God say? But it's important that we understand as you're studying prophecy, as you listen to someone else teach prophecy, as you're reading prophecy, there'll be times when you say, I wonder if it means that. And that's totally fine. But don't then say, I wonder if it means that, and then turn that into, well, you know it means that. Understand where the, Lord, where the word of God comes to, and it's very specific, but also understand where it stops. So, with that being said, let's open up to Ezekiel 38, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. So, what on earth are we talking about? God is describing the summoning of a massive army. And this is an army that has never before existed in the history of the world. And really up until the last couple decades and even more specifically into the last couple years has never even geopolitically been imaginable. But what he's describing here so specifically, he says, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Gog is a title. It's, it's, it's a leader of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And as you read through these names, these are not, most of these are not names that you can find on a map today, but these are tied. The majority of these names are tied back to the book of Genesis, which is why you read the whole scripture. And in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, we get a table of nations. After the flood when God destroyed the, the world except for Noah and his three sons and their wives, then they started to multiply and their descendants spread out over the earth. And Genesis 10, chapter, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. And then he goes down, verse 5, says, From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Verse 6, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdaka. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. These are names. But as these men spread out over the world and began to have families, they became places and people groups. And so as we look at this passage in Ezekiel, it's important to back up and say, okay, where in the world are these people groups talking about? So Magog, is in, he says, Gog of the land of Magog. Magog is an ancient name for the area of Russia and for the Scythian people. Notice also he says it's from the far north. If you look at a map of Israel today and you go to the far north, you hit Russia. 
Moscow is only about five degrees off of being due north of Jerusalem. It is north, out of the far north. Now, when it says uh, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, Rosh could be specifically tied to the Rus. The Russian people are, were originally known as the Rus people, or you could sort of linguistically hear it from the Rosh people. It could also be a word for prince. So it could say, you're the prince of Meshach and Tubal. It could be saying, you're the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal, truth be told, nobody is exactly 100% positive where these places are at. A lot of people think it's the city of Moscow and the city of Tobolsk, which are both north of Jerusalem. But we're not totally sure. Now, when he says Magog, and if he's referencing the Scythian people, which is the people who settled what became known as Magog, then that could also include the country of Ukraine. Now, all of a sudden, this just got really interesting geopolitically because we have a prophecy about Russia coming to attack the nation of Israel and a prophecy that could include the land of Ukraine. Now, this is where, again, there's what do we know and what do we speculate. We know that Gog of the land of Magog is going to come against the nation of Israel. Does that mean that Vladimir Putin's going to win the war in Ukraine? I have no idea. Does that mean that Ukraine and Russia are going to sign a peace treaty? I have no idea. But what does it mean? It means that the Lord, as we look at our world, we don't say, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? We say, huh, I'm curious what the Lord is going to do right here. Because he spoke about this. And he has a plan, he's going to orchestrate it. So some of the other names in this paragraph. Who else is, is with this army? Who else is with Gog? He says Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now Persia is probably the easiest one to identify because up until the, you know, into the 1900s, it was known as Persia. Now it's known as Iran. The area that he calls Ethiopia, it's the ancient territory of Ethiopia, which would actually be now more modern-day Sudan, part of northern Ethiopia. And the area that he calls Libya would, by and large, constitute modern-day Libya. So he says Russia is going to come out of the north with an army, and it's going to also include Iran, Sudan, and Libya. Now, do you notice what these places are? These are, the, these are the hotbeds of radical Islam. If you were to look at a map today and say, pick out the countries that most hate the Jewish people, you would pick probably Iran, Sudan, and Libya. And isn't it interesting this is a prophecy that's written a thousand years before Islam ever existed. It's written 2,000 years before Russia became a world power. So to any person reading this prophecy for all of those years after Ezekiel wrote it, they'd say, this must be metaphorical. This must be, I don't know what God's doing here, but it must be something obscure. You know, far north maybe means something about you know, the, the state of their heart or you know, something interesting we don't know. Uh, maybe we'll read it backwards and count the, you know, the fifth consonants and we'll get something there. But as we look at it today, we say, wow, the Lord could fulfill this literally. He can fulfill this right now, literally. Who else is in the list? He says, Gomer with all its troops and the house of Tagarma. Now, Tagarma, these are both names that are back in Genesis 10. Tagarma is specifically the region of Turkey. So Turkey's included. And if you follow the news, you understand that that's a really interesting development really within the last two to five years. Because Turkey for a long time was trying to get into the EU. 
And they're a Muslim country, but they tried to push for a secular identity and say, well, you know, I mean, we're sort of Muslim privately, but we're secular politically. And they tried to get into EU, and the EU stalled them out. And then finally, the president of Turkey said, you know what, the heck with that. We're Muslim. And so now it's, it's officially, it's Turkey. They changed the name. It's, it's more of an Arabic sound. Turkey is establishing an Islamic identity in our lifetime, right now. It is, it is growing in its identity, and it's solidifying as a Muslim identity. Now, Gomer could be referencing Turkey. Some people think it also could be referencing farther into Europe, maybe Germany, maybe Europe as a whole. We're not honestly totally sure. It does say that Gomer, with all of its troops, so there's an indication of maybe a larger military coalition. So again, where do we know, what do we know, what do we speculate? Tagarma is Turkey, Gomer could be Turkey, Gomer could be somewhere in Europe. As we look at the world, though, we do say, isn't it interesting? The anti-Semitism <clears throat> is ticking up in Europe faster than really at any point other than right before World War II. It is on the rise. And Jewish people all around the world are getting nervous about what is safe for us anymore. Right? We, don't, we just look and say, isn't it interesting? That the Lord wrote a prophecy, and we look and we say, wow, it's, it's, the pieces are falling into place right in front of our eyes. Notice also who's not in the list. And this is where the word of God gets even more specific, because he's, just, he's listing, hey, here are the enemies who are coming against Israel. And if you were to say, well, who are the enemies of Israel? There's a couple people who should be on the list, but are not. So notice who's not in this list. Egypt. Egypt is a Muslim country today, but you know, Egypt is also an ally of Israel. Jordan is a Muslim country today, but they're an ally of Israel. They're not, neither one of them are mentioned in this army. Syria is not an ally of Israel, but Syria has been so decimated in civil war that Syria has no capability to field an army outside of its borders. Syria cannot join an army right now. And Iraq Another Muslim country, but Iraq is busy. Iraq, is, Iraq has been so decimated after Saddam Hussein and after the invasion of ISIS that Iraq can't go. Iraq has bigger problems at home. So the Lord wrote this down. He said, okay, here's the enemies who are coming. He didn't say these ones aren't, but we look and we say, this is the first time at any point in all of human history that these countries are lined up this way. That we see Russia, Sudan, Iran, Libya tightening their alliances as Russia's selling them arms, and there's, there's an oil and, and military exchange going on, okay? We see Egypt being allies with Israel. Even they don't have to like each other. They don't have to really trust each other. But Egypt is scared of Iran. And so Egypt says, you know what? We'll, we'll share information. We can be friends with Israel. We may not like it, but we need it. Jordan, same thing. Syria and Iraq are, are too busy. So he goes on in verse 7. And he says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and be gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. So these countries are going to come against Israel after Israel comes back into the land. Now that's the prophecy that the Lord gives in Ezekiel 37. 
So he says, after Israel comes back, after they become a nation again, this is going to happen. So we've been, in, a, in essence, watching for this prophecy to happen ever since 1948. Okay? We're waiting for it. But he says, you're going to come up against, and he says, you're going to come up against all of them when they dwell safely. Now, if you've noticed, Israel is not necessarily the safest place in the world right now. But, and it's worth noting that the word safely could also be translated confidently. Israel is in the middle of a war right now. But Israel is very confident. In fact, Israel's, honestly, Israel's military struggles as a country have been due to overconfidence. Israel gets in trouble because Israel has these amazing victories where God works on their behalf and they say, yeah, we're pretty awesome. We did, we, we did what we needed to do. Even right now, you know, Israel's in a major conflict. But when you listen to what Israel says... There's not a lot of Israeli news about, you know what, we need to repent before the Lord. We need to ask for God's favor. It's more like, you know what, we got this. They caught us a little flat-footed, but we're coming. We've got this. We'll take care of Hamas. Don't you worry. You stay out of our business, and we'll deal with what needs to be done. Israel is a confident nation. Truthfully, they're, they're a prideful nation. They're still God's people, but they are still capable of sin, and so they're still walking in self-confidence. And the Lord is going to do, deal with their self-confidence in this, but he's also going to show himself faithful in this. So this coalition comes up against Israel when either they're dwelling safely or they're dwelling confidently. And in verse 10, it goes on. And it says, Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind. He's speaking here to Gog, the leader. And you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go up to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? So God says, you're going to make an evil plan. And the Lord considers that evil. Our world does not like to use words like evil. We talk about injustice. We talk about equity. We're not very good at calling things evil. Because that just sounds insensitive. And God says, no, this is evil. You're preparing to attack a group of people. And specifically, you're preparing to attack my group of people. This is evil. And he says also here, this is interesting. So, I guess to back up, in here, there's kind of a greater reference to maybe Israel being at peace. A land of unwalled villages, uh, people who dwell safely, peaceful people. This could be that Israel is very much the tough kid in the neighborhood right now. It could be. It could be referencing something that hasn't quite happened yet. And this is where it's important to note that we don't know exactly when this prophecy gets fulfilled. Okay? Especially in, in regards to the end times prophecies. Where's the sort of the sequence of events? So it is not the final battle of Armageddon because that's a very different way of judgment from the Lord. The Lord deals with that one differently. It's a separate battle. It is probably, and, and again, you'll notice I said probably, either right before or right after the rapture of the church. Right before or right after the rapture of the church when the Lord removes the church and then from that point the great tribulation starts. And I say it's probably that because as we read about the judgment of this army, when the Lord deals with this army, it's going to create a major power vacuum in the world. 
And power vacuums always get filled. Someone always comes to power. And if a European power vacuum emerges, and we know that there's a prophecy about a European world ruler arising, then likely, and I say likely, they're very connected. Likely, this battle precipitates the rise of the Antichrist. He'll come out of that power vacuum and say, I can be the guy. We obviously have a world peace problem. I can be the man to broker world peace. And that will be his rise to power will be out of this. Now, he says here that Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions will say, have you come to take plunder? There will be a, a verbal protest on the part of a handful of countries. And again, it's very interesting. Sheba and Dedan are references to the area of Saudi Arabia. Some people would say it might be more specifically the countries of Yemen and Oman, uh, but the Arabian Peninsula. And again, geopolitically, what do we have right now? Saudi Arabia does not like Israel. But they need Israel because they are scared of Iran. And so they're, they're, it's a very uncomfortable alliance because they kind of need each other, but they really don't like each other. And Saudi Arabia might take the opportunity to say, hey, you know what? We warned Russia this was a bad idea. Okay, hey, you know, that is, we strongly protest this. We condemn this in the strongest possible terms, right? There's all kinds of great political ways you can say nothing or say everything and do nothing. Saudi Arabia is not going to do anything. But they'll make a, they'll make a, you know, a good show. They'll, they'll go on the air and they'll say, you know what? This is, this is not right. This is a little too much. Let's, let's you know, let's, let's cool the noise. Let's, let's broker some negotiations but they're not going to do anything about it. And Tarshish and all the young lions, again, this is an area that we're not totally positive where it's referencing. Okay, some people believe that Tarshish is in Spain. And so it could be an indication that maybe the country of Spain or maybe sort of Western Europe in general kind of just doesn't do anything but says, oh yeah, you're crossing a line. Some people think Tarshish is actually in England. In which case, they say Tarshish and all of its young lions could represent England and, if you will, the descendants of England, the English-speaking world, which would include Canada, the United States, and Australia. Now, if that's the case, and I say if because it is a little bit of a stretch, but if that's the case, that's the only reference to the United States anywhere in biblical prophecy. Which, you know, again, we said prophecy does two things. It should comfort you and make you uncomfortable, and it depends on where your hope is. It's important to understand the United States is not the pinnacle of God's creation. Okay? And specifically, in the end times, the United States is not a major player. Why is that? I do not know. Now, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of very good theories, and there's a lot of room for a lot of speculation. My hope is that the United States experiences a massive revival, and so many people get saved that when the rapture comes, there's nobody left. That would be great. I, I, I hope, and, I, and then if, again, if prophecy should cause us to live urgently, we should be living as if that's the option. And we should be pursuing that. It could also be that we just politically just kind of devolve in power because we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves. It could be that our national debt is a problem. There's, there's, a, there's a million different ways we could lose power globally. But again, what's your hope? Is your hope in the United States to keep world peace? Because that won't do anything. If your hope is Donald Trump getting back into office, right, and, and fixing all, you know, showing them and, and fixing the problem, guess what? Donald Trump is not going to save the world. Jesus Christ is. If your hope 
is in anything other than Jesus Christ, prophecy is going to make you squirm in your seat. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, you say, you know what? I don't know what happens. But I know that Jesus Christ is real, and I know that he's coming back. And I'm going to live with urgency so when he comes back, I can rejoice when I get to see him. But the United States, if, if the United States is referenced in biblical prophecy, it's this right here, which would mean that the United States is not going to help Israel when this battle takes place. And even today, geopolitically, it's interesting. We're an ally of Israel. We're friends with Israel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pro-Israeli energy and sentiment in the United States right now, but there is a shift starting to happen. Have you seen it? Are you watching it? There's a, there's, a, there's a momentum starting to happen of, you know what? Israelis are being just a little too brutal. You know, it, it's an, and you're starting to hear all these, all these ideas about, you know, it's just, you know, Gaza is just an, an open-air prison camp. And, all, you know, we just need to kind of you know, free the Palestinians, destroy Hamas. And there's all these ideas. And I'm not saying that Israel is politically perfect. Israel's government is made up of sinful people. Israel's government makes stupid mistakes. Israel's government does sinful things sometimes. But there's a difference between saying, that was a bad action, and saying, you do not have the right to exist. And so we as Christians can, can fully call into account bad behavior. But God has said, these are my people Israel, and they will endure. And so we have to be very careful, and, and especially in the church. There's always been this question ever since the early church, well, did the Christians replace the Jewish people? Did we replace, did God's promises to Israel transfer over to the church? Paul addressed the question specifically because it was an issue back when Paul was writing letters. He said, has God forsaken his people? Certainly not. The Jewish people still have all the promises that God gave to them. But the Jewish people still have a responsibility to know and accept and trust Jesus Christ. And so that is where to be a Christian, to be a biblically-minded Christian, is to support Israel and is to support Israel's right to exist. It is also to understand that every Jewish person has the same obligation as every non-Jewish person. That is to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, we have the army. We have them coming together. The coalition is, is forming. you got the, the protesters and the, and the non-involved parties. In verse 14, there's a, there's a party that you might have forgotten about in this, and that's God. He says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am hollowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in the former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Notice, God says, These are my people. This is my land. God takes threats against his children very, very seriously. Lord, do not play games with God's people. Okay? Think about your children. You don't want people to play certain games with them. There are certain behaviors you say, you don't do that. Ever. 
or I'll show you how uncivilized I can be. Right? There are certain things, there are certain lines you do not let people cross with your children. And God says that about his children. He says, this is my land, and these are my kids. You're in my house, buddy. You do not do this. And he says, again, just, he says it'll be in the latter days. When's it going to be? It's going to be in the last days. And he says in verse 17, thus says the Lord of God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? When this comes, when this army forms, people say, Oh, wait, this is Ezekiel 38. Isn't that, so understand, in a sense, we today are partaking in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Because we will hopefully, by the end of today, be equipped so that when this coalition forms and starts to come and, and everyone on earth is freaking out and panicking about, well, is Israel going to nuke Moscow or is Moscow going to nuke Israel and what's going to happen with Iran and what's the, the European conflict going to do and is this going to destroy the EU or is this going to solidify the EU and why isn't the U.S. doing anything? We can say, you know what, actually, God already told us about this. And, and we know how it ends. So, if you'd like to know how it ends, here it goes. Verse 18. And it will come to pass... At the same time, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For my jealousy, in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog, Throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. God says, all right, this one's my fight. Israel is standing alone. And the military might of the world is coming against it. And God says, you know what, these are my people. And God says, just like, just like a dad is capable of if someone attacks his children. He says, you get, my fury will show in my face. God is going to say, okay, you know what? That's it. This, this, is, this is a line that will be dealt with, and it will be dealt with right now. And he says, I will call for a sword. Most of the times in Scripture, when we read of a major judgment, it's an angel doing the judgment. When the Assyrian army came against Hezekiah, it says an angel of the Lord. Doesn't it, we don't even get a name. It's just some angel. Went down and struck 185,000 in one night. When the firstborn all died in the land of Egypt, we told an angel went down and dealt with them. But this one specifically, God says, I'm calling for the sword, which is a glorious military picture, if you will. Right? God says, all right, sword, I'm taking this one. And so he comes down to judge these nations. And again, this is why we emphasize that God is going to judge nations and individuals separately. God right here is dealing with nations and as we read this, we need to not think, oh my gosh, what about all the innocent people here? No, no, no. Every person here is not innocent people. This is God dealing perfectly in his judgment. So he says, every man's sword, well, we'll go back to verse 21. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. The coalition is going to fall apart, which inherently makes sense. It makes sense, really, in the context of where we're at today. Because Russia is, for all practical purposes, an atheist country. Iran is not. Iran will be fighting a holy war. Russia will be fighting an economic war. 
And if the only thing binding two people who don't trust each other together is their mutual hatred of one other country, it doesn't take an awful lot to turn them against each other. So every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So he says the coalition will fall apart, but I am going to deal with them. And I am going to destroy the armies, and I'm going to make it very, very clear to the world that I did it. Nobody's going to say, oh wow, there was a lack of communication between Iran and Russia. Nobody's going to say, oh, you know, if the Sudanese would have communicated a little better, maybe this would have pulled off. Everyone is going to say, I don't know what that was, but it was God. That was freaky. That was not natural. That was supernatural. Because things like that don't happen. Okay? And he says, I will magnify myself. And he says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord's judgment is also the Lord's salvation. The Lord says, I'm going to judge these people. And he's judging them justly because he comprehends every individual perfectly. Because he knows the heart of man. But he says, I'm going to use it. This is not just God flying off the handle. This is God saying, I'm going to demonstrate to the whole world that I'm real, that I'm powerful, that I care about the people of Israel, and that I'm still in control. I'm still God. I'm still in charge. So the whole point of this prophecy, again, what is the point of prophecy? It's to point us to Christ. Yes, it is interesting to know that there's a prophecy about a Russia, Iran, Turkey, you know, Libya, Sudan, coalition coming together. It's really interesting to know that Egypt isn't there and Syria isn't there, but it's much more worthwhile to know that God wants people to know who Jesus Christ is. And so he says, I'm going to use this. And I'm actually even going to use you as you are able to say, hey, guess what? We've read about this. We know how the ending goes in this situation. I'm going to use that to magnify myself, the Lord says. And so he goes on. He's going to now carry the idea. Verse 30, chapter 39 maintains some repetition, but also has some details about what happens after the battle. So verse 39, he says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. Their armies are going to just fail to function. Verse 4, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey and every sort of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. God says, all right, in case you forgot, I'm going to deal with this. And he gives some details. He says, I'm going to rain fire on Magog. So the coalition will fall apart, but farther north. Magog is going to be judged by God. And if Magog is, you know, if he's referencing uh, 
you know, maybe Moscow specifically, whether or not he is, whatever happens in the far north, we'll be able to look and say, oh, that's what he was talking about. He rained fire down on that area specifically. Maybe God knows what he's talking about. Maybe God is, is powerful. Maybe God is capable of doing what he said. But he says it so that, verse 7, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. This is all about God glorifying himself. Verse 9, he says, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them. He says Israel is going to collect the weapons of these armies and use them for fuel for seven years. Which is just interesting if you consider it. So I guess to back up, you know, we do interpret prophecy as literally as possible. The weapons that are described here, if you look at them, you say, I don't think people use those weapons too often. Those are kind of outdated weapons. And frankly, here's the answer to that. There's basically two approaches. Some people say that there's going to be a return to a much more primitive way of life, especially in, in the world, which, if you watch, could be true, right? Gas stoves are out. AC is, is quickly on its way out. Uh, there's a lot of push to get rid of things that we might call conveniences that have become so convenient that we sort of think of them as necessities. Uh, some people have said, you know, if there's a nuclear exchange in World War III, then World War IV is going to be fought with sticks and stones. We could blow ourselves back to ancient times. That's possible. I don't know if I think that's what will happen, but it's possible. Some people say, you know what, Ezekiel's having this vision, and he's just trying to describe modern warfare with the best words he's got, right? If you saw Patriot missiles, and, and you're Ezekiel, you might say, like, that looks an awful lot like a javelin. You know, that's kind of a spear thing, right? F-16s, those are kind of like bows and arrows. I mean, you know, like you got, you know, it's doing something's launching it, you know. Um, so it could, it could be either way. But he says Israel's going to use the weapons from these armies for seven years of energy. So I don't know what that means. Does Israel, does, do they capture, are there oil tankers sitting in the Mediterranean fueling these armies that Israel captures? Maybe. Are there nuclear cores in the weaponry? that Israel pulls out and uses to power their, their plants? Quite possibly. Whatever it is, I don't know for sure, but I mean, think about if you pull together all of these countries, one of, one of the major things in a military engagement is logistics. How do we keep the food and the fuel moving to the front lines? And an army this big is going to have a massive amount of fuel on hand. And if the Lord just wipes out the armies... Israel has every right to say, well, nobody's coming to pick it up. I guess it's ours. So the Lord's going to actually bless the nation of Israel with energy for seven years by this event. Verse 11, it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. And therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. That's a big army. It's a seven-month project. Now, practically, you're looking at probably a major disruption of transportation. If the Lord says there's going to be a massive earthquake, I'm going to rain down, uh, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone, that's not great for road maintenance. So it could just be that the logistics of these guys are now in a remote place, and there's a massive amount of carnage creates the problem. It's also, though, connected to 
This is a huge army. When the Lord wipes out this army, it's going to be very clear to everyone that this was not an accidental event, that the Lord was doing something specific. Verse 13, Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on that day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus, they shall cleanse the land. Some people look at this and say, that sounds an awful lot like a nuclear cleanup. You got guys going around finding any piece of... of, of remains that's, that's too radioactive to get close to safely, and so they put up the marker, and then the other guys come in and handle it. Totally could be that. Could also be Israel has is is, got a massive tourism industry. And if you have a tourism industry, being clean is a big part of it. So it could be that Israel says, you know what? We're going to take this. We're just mobilize the army. Everybody's on cleanup. And we're going to move through. And so, you know, we don't know for sure exactly what this will look like, but again... If Scripture tends to fulfill literally, if we see this fulfilled in our lifetimes, we're going to say, oh, that was even more literal than I anticipated. Verse 17. He says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. A great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel. That you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. That's a sober passage. There's nothing funny about it. But there is an awareness in there of how the Lord deals with things. At the end of the day, you know, our world is obsessed with power and prestige. God says, you know what? When vultures are eating you, it doesn't matter what you had. It doesn't matter how much money you had. It doesn't matter how many men you commanded. It doesn't matter anything. You're dead. And so know what happens to you before you die. The Lord says... You're all in the same, it's a, it's a level playing field. Everyone has the exact same opportunity to know the Lord. And if you refuse it, whatever, whatever you refuse the Lord for, whatever you say, I don't want Jesus Christ because I want this instead, that will last you up until the second you die. And you will not get any further than that. And he says, this is, this is a harsh judgment. This is a very sober judgment, but it's completely within the bounds of the Lord's grace, too. Because the Lord knows every individual. And there are people who have had every chance from the Lord and say, no, I do not want it. And the Lord will not force someone to love him because that is not love. That's coercion. The Lord gives everyone an equal opportunity to love him. But he gives everyone the number of chances that they need. And so he says, okay, if you refused and you're part of this army, you will be judged. And I will deal with you, and it will be very serious. Verse 21, he says, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel 
shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hands of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. God says, again, I'm going to make sure that the world knows that this is what I am doing. And the world will suddenly realize Israel did not become a nation again because the Western world felt bad for the Jewish people after the Holocaust. That's not why Israel became a nation. Israel wasn't not a nation for 1,900 years just because there was a shuffle in the political system and nobody knew what to do. God says, everyone is going to realize I was in charge of the whole thing. I dealt with them for their sins and I am bringing them back as a nation. They're going to understand that I established the nation of Israel. Not the UN. Not the Balfour Declaration. No, 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 nothing. No, no. The works of men did not establish the nation of Israel. The hand of God established the nation of Israel. And And again, why does it matter? Because prophecy is meant to do two things. It's meant to make us comfortable and uncomfortable. And if you realize that the hand of God has established his people, in the nation of Israel, and said, no one will successfully destroy you. And he said it 2,500 years ago, and it's still relevant. Then understand there are promises that God has given to us in the scriptures as well. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, the word of the Lord stands forever. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word endures. He said, I'm coming back. Right? Those promises are true too. If the promises of God are true, then the promises of God are true. And so if God has established his truth and said this is true regarding the nation of Israel and this is true regarding you as an individual and understand if he's capable of completing his promises to the nation of Israel, he is equally capable of completing his promises to you. And that is why we look at prophecy. That's why prophecy calls us to live urgently because his promises are true to the nation of Israel. His warnings are also true. His promises are true to us, but his warnings are also true to us. He says, don't waste your life. You've got a very finite window of time. What is, you know, how many stupid ways could you waste it? How many valuable ways could you spend it? What are you doing with your life? And again, the role of prophecy is to what? To point us to Jesus Christ. So verse 25, as he's wrapping up the chapter, he says, therefore... Thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. God defends the nation of Israel in in large part because it's a symbol of his name, of of his ability to defend his own reputation. God has said this is true. And so when someone says, No, it's not. We'll destroy Israel. God says, No, you won't. Because if you destroy Israel, you're actually destroying the word of God. And so it's not going to happen. If you destroy my promises, you've destroyed everything that's true about me. It's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how much power you bring against them. No matter how much money, how many weapons. He says, I'm jealous for my holy name. God is very serious about his name. And if you watch throughout scripture, very often the judgment of God comes at the point when someone insults the name of God. They say, who is God? What is God actually capable of? And right about then is when God says, 
since you asked, I'll show you. And so same deal here. Verse 26, he says, After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' hands, and I am hollowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land, and left none of them captive any longer, and I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. God says, I'm going to use this to wake up the world, and I'm going to use this to wake up the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation is largely agnostic. They have a Jewish cultural identity today, but most of them have no idea what they really believe. They know they celebrate Passover once a year. It really doesn't mean anything religiously to them. Most of them are somewhere between atheists and agnostic. And God says, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to stir up the hearts of the nation of Israel. And again, part of the reason why I believe this is either right before or right after the rapture of the church, it's sort of the predecessor to the Great Tribulation, if you will, is that in the Great Tribulation, we're told about a massive revival of the Jewish people that the Lord is actually going to use to establish 144,000 evangelists who are then going to help evangelize the rest of the world. God is going to raise up evangelists out of Israel to spread the gospel in one last mass wave. And he's going to use this. I believe he is. I believe this is going to be the event that comes very shortly before to stir up the hearts of Israelites to say, you know what? That wasn't a close shave. That wasn't like a lucky move. That wasn't an odd coincidence. That was God. That was God protecting us as Jewish people. Huh. Maybe I should figure out who this God is. God's going to do that in the nation of Israel. He's going to do that all over the world. And so, again, you know, it's important to understand what we know, what we speculate. When is this going to happen? I don't know. But I know if my phone went off right now and I got a government alert that Russia was launching nuclear missiles towards the nation of Israel, I wouldn't be surprised. It could happen right now. Right? And so understand the difference between there is what we know and what we speculate, okay? If Russia takes Ukraine, could that then set the stage for this? Yeah. If Russia says, hey, you know what? We're not getting any headway in this war against Ukraine. Let's just switch gears and go south. Could that set the stage for this? Yeah. If Iran continues to pour money into its nuclear system, could that facilitate this? Yeah. Could it all be decades or a century down the road? Yes. But understand, as, as we look at the Word of God, this is the first time in all of human history that these pieces have been set in place like this. Okay? And, and even, you know, if you listen to pastors from 10, 20 years ago, they say, no, this is the first time it's been like this. If you're right here today, it's tighter. It's, it's closer. These countries are, are more aligned than they've ever been. They're more aligned than they were 12 months ago. And we look at that, again, not as a means of saying, oh my gosh, the world's about to end. We look at it as a way of saying, the Lord is about to fulfill his word. Because the Lord is a good God who fulfills his word. And this should cause us to live with immense peace. Because here's the deal. When this coalition forms, the world is going to panic. The world is going to be losing their minds even more than they currently are. Okay? And it will be the conversation that everyone is having. 
right? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think, do you think, do you think you're going to go for it? Do you think, you know, there's going to be all this, you know, there's going to be a lot of political talk, and do you think they're going to stand down? Is this real? Is it saber-rattling? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You can say, you know what, here's the deal. I don't know if this is it or not. I don't know if Vladimir Putin is Gog or not. I have no idea. But here's what I know. If, if it is, if he is, if this is the time when Russia comes against Israel, I know how it ends. Right? I don't know exactly what month, what day, what year, when does this go down? I don't know. But when it does, I know how it ends. And think about, just in conversation with people, to be able to say that with a straight face. I know, I know, I know where it goes. How do you know? Well, God is real. God gave us his word. God actually is going to keep his promises to Israel. And you know what? Incidentally, he has promises that he wants to keep in your life too. This is not our chance to have a leg up on people. This is our chance to be living as people who know Jesus Christ. Okay? And so I believe that's a, that's a massive part of why we study prophecy. Prophecy for its own sake is a waste of time. It's stupid. To look ahead and just, and just spend your time speculating as the end in and of itself, is a waste of life. But to look ahead and say, I hope that the Lord stirs this up in my heart to stir up a burden for evangelism in my heart, now that's something worthwhile. And so we should be marked by peace in our lives when we read prophecy. If you don't have peace, if you listen to that and you think, that's freaky, and I'm freaking out right now, then back up and ask yourself, do you have peace? Does it... Does it, I mean, it's admittedly just a little bit weird to think that 2,500 years ago, a guy managed to write down the current geopolitical state of our world today. That's just a little interesting, isn't it? But do you have peace in the midst of that? Are you able to say, when you read the news, you know, when, when you read about Russia invading Ukraine in early 22, did you panic? Or did you say, huh, I'm curious where this goes, because I know that's not Russia's final war. Did you, did, you know, did you freak out when Hamas invaded Israel? Or did you say, I wonder where this goes? Because this isn't the final war yet. Because God's still doing something. If you don't have that peace, then back up and understand that peace of God comes through the grace of God. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you are not walking wisely in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and you are not experiencing His grace, then guess what? Peace isn't going to be there. Peace is the after effect. Grace is when you realize God loves me. God has made promises towards me. God has died for me, and He's raising me to spiritual life. He is in control, and I am letting Him do what He wants in my life. Once that happens, peace follows. If that has not happened, peace is only a pathetic attempt that we try and foster. Okay? And that's why the world gets strung out on drugs and sex and everything else, because they're trying to make peace. And they think, if we can just make peace, we'll be fine. But you can't make peace, you receive peace. Peace comes after grace. And so if you, haven't, if you don't have peace in your life, then go back and ask yourself, do I have grace? If you don't have peace in your life and you say, well, I do have grace, then ask yourself, am I walking in grace? Am I walking with the Lord? Because prophecy is meant to stir us up. Jesus said, I'm coming back quickly. If you're on the one-year Bible plan, we read Revelation 22 today where he says, the spirit and the bride say come, and Jesus himself says, I am coming quickly. He is coming back. And I would like to not be caught flat-footed when he gets here. When Jesus comes for me, I don't want to say, snap. 
I wish I had, like, mm, you know, one more phone call. Or, you know, five minutes, you know, or could I at least have been in a separate, in a different building when you came? Like, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not here. Other buildings. <laughs> but, do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus wants us to live with urgency because he's coming for us. And he wants us to know him. And he wants us, as we know him, to invite other people to know him. And he's going to use his word. He's going to use the events that are prophesied to stir that up in people. And he's inviting us to know that, to know his peace, and then to be a part of his plan for the world. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We are amazed that over 2,500 years ago, you could speak to Ezekiel and tell us what our world would be like today. That can't be written by men. That can't be a clever story. That's not wisdom literature. That's not a myth. It's not folklore. That's the words of God. And so we pray that as we recognize that, that would work into our hearts. We would be stirred up to take your word seriously. That we would be stirred up to live like you're real and like you're coming back. And God, we pray that your spirit would fill us and empower us, that you would Burden our hearts for the loss and give us your peace at the same time. We want to be comfortably uncomfortable because we want to rest in you, but we want to hurt for the world. And we pray that you would go before us, that you would guide us and lead us, and that you would stir up our hearts to do the work that you've invited us to do. But most of all, God, we want to be focused on Jesus Christ. We want to know you more and more. And so it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. And we pray that you come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And as we always say, everybody have an awesome, awesome week.